Why do you suggest companies move towards reference-based pricing as a payment alternative? Well, you know, if the plan wants to save money and if they want some control in, in how they reimburse providers and, and what their, their savings are, then they, they need to do something other than what they're doing today. So it is something new. It's more work for everyone involved. I will say that. More work for the third-party administrator. It's going to be more work for the plan. It's going to be more work for the broker and certainly the member. But if we keep doing what we're doing today, it's not very effective. Reference-based pricing is going to have a significant amount of savings for the plan, but there will be you know, things that need to be worked out. Patient access, balance bills, your RBP vendor needs to have solutions to help members and plans tackle all the things that come along with reference-based pricing. Hello, this is Mike Andrade. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Solving Healthcare, where we seek to interview and promote companies that are positively affecting the healthcare industry. And today is no exception. We are talking to Ms. Kelly Jackson, the Vice President of Sales and Client Engagement for Payer Compass. Kelly, tell me a little bit about you. Sure. I'm employee number three here. So I've been here over six years. We really started as a, you know, we called it two guys in a computer. Uh, Greg was our CEO and president. Roman is our CIO and he actually is the developer that wrote the code many years ago of, of, our, of our system today. So it was really just two guys with a computer and I joined down to help with operations. Built up a client service team over the years. And about two years ago, Greg asked me if I was interested in, in moving over and helping him with sales. What we do is a very operational sale, needing to understand all the components of our technology and our reference-based pricing program. I was ready for a change and a challenge. So I said, sure. And so that's when I moved over to sales and work with our existing clients today in a different capacity, but certainly out there in the market, meeting new clients, a lot of times clients of clients, you know, our clients are, are third-party administrators who we contract with, but spend a lot of time this last two years talking to healthcare consultants, brokers, stop-loss carriers, not necessarily the end employer but uh, certainly people that are involved in the grand scheme of things, helping, helping educate uh, folks on what reference-based pricing is, you know, what the payer compass solution is, how we differentiate ourselves from others in the market. So that's what I do today. Awesome. I also see that you went to uh, Texas A&M. Did, yeah. you, did you grow up in Texas or? No, I moved my parent. My dad's company transferred him here uh, when I was a sophomore in college. So I finished out that year in, in New Mexico. And then I decided to, to move to Texas. and applied to A&M and finished my last two years there. So it was a great, great experience down in College Station. I am from the Los Angeles area. And so I, I can't tell the A&M jokes or the Aggie jokes, or I'm sorry, or the UT jokes, but uh, the longer I'm here, the funnier they get. So I'm sure you have some good, right. some good material. Folks outside the state don't, don't understand it. For locals here in Texas, it is something we all get. Hopefully one of my three kids, if I'm lucky, will go there as well. Uh, so we're based in Plano, Texas. It's a suburb of Dallas. And uh, we also have uh, a division of our company that handles our patient advocacy and balanced billing care management. That, that division is branded as, as uh, CareValent. They're located in St. Petersburg, Florida. But the rest of the company is here in Plano. That's the executive team, sales, marketing, finance, development, compliance, customer service, contract loading. That's pretty much everybody else is here in the Plano office. You talked about your company as two guys in a computer and solving a problem. Can you talk a little bit about the problem that you're trying to solve and what you think the size of the problem to be? 
Sure. So the problem is that self-funded employers need options. And in, in renting a network, whether it's a, it's a national VUCA or some kind of regional network, you know, the renewals that come in and, and many employers can't sustain them. The problem with networks is that where they started back in the day of really trying to offer direct contracting with, with discounts to employers, really it's all about, you know, about the size of your network and, and, and who's in the network and the access. We bring a level of transparency. You know, people do not understand what the price of healthcare is, what people are charging for it. If you are the large PPO, you don't know how much your plan is going to pay for a service. You have no idea. So we, we try to bring information and options, alternatives to self-funded employers that are looking for an alternative to the status quo and certainly something to do to help save healthcare dollars. So in terms of quantifying that, you mentioned that people don't know the price of healthcare and what they're paying for. First of all, I totally agree. Having a, a family that occasionally uses the healthcare system to uses the healthcare system a lot. We talk about consumer directed health and we talk about using in-network providers, but at the hospital level, it's still kind of a mystery. I don't even think the hospital knows until they do everything that they're supposed to do. Walk, walk me through when you say that part of the solution that you bring to the table is more clarity and more transparency. How do you do that? It's really being able to take a service that a provider, either a hospital or, or a physician, but typically, you know, we're talking hospital charges that are going up to some unsustainable level. But we're able to take a claim that a provider drops and price them to what Medicare would pay because is Medicare the, the, the perfect reference point? You know, maybe not, but in lieu of nothing, that w- that's what we have. You know, Medicare is based in cost. Hospitals fill out cost reports and submit to CMS every year. So they have uh, done a very thorough job in figuring out what does it cost a hospital to provide every service imaginable, whether it's inpatient services, every single DRG out there, every type of outpatient service, there's a cost associated with that. We can price that claim to see what, you know, Medicare would have reimbursed. And then we allow plan sponsors to set rates as to what they think is is a fair uh, reimbursement. Uh, we certainly make uh, recommendations when a lot of plan sponsors don't know, you know, what is fair? Is 140% of Medicare fair? Is 160% of Medicare fair? You know, what is, a, what is a fair rate that a provider will take for a service? We help bring clarity to that in, in what that claim would pay, what other people are paying, what providers are, are accepting without a significant mm-hmm. level of pushback. And what I think is interesting is, so we have a, being in Houston, we have you know, three or four hospital systems and, and one hospital system in particular, you know, all the, all of the data is available through CMS. But when you look at the charge master, now this is all information they have to report publicly. If you look at their charge master, they're charging roughly 10 times what the Medicare reimbursement rate. And in a traditional discount world, if you're getting a 70% discount, which in the traditional PPO network space, we're all agreeing we're doing a great job. But if you just kind of do the, the math, they're paying 300% of Medicare. What I'm hearing you say is in a reference-based pricing world, we're using Medicare as the arbiter of what the reimbursement rate should be. And correct me if I'm wrong, but Medicare also has a qualitative adjustment to it so that if hospital A provides better quality and whatever that procedure might be, they might get a little bit of an increase over hospital B. Is that correct? 
Absolutely correct. So Medicare takes all of that into account. There's all type of factors. You have two hospitals across the street from each other. So let's take wage index out of the mix. You know, you're mm-hmm. not comparing a hospital in Alabama to, to California. Let's say they're across the street from each other. You know, one hospital could be a teaching hospital and one mm-hmm. hospital's not. Well, for a hospital that teaches doctors, it costs them more money. They have more overhead. So Medicare will reimburse that hospital more. It's on the inpatient side, not necessarily the outpatient side, or there's this factor in there building there. How much does it teach hospitals? Medicare keeps track of something called a hack adjustment, hospital acquired condition. Mm -hmm. Uh, When a member walks into a hospital, some hospitals are more likely to walk out with more, more things they walked in with based on infection, disease, et cetera. So hospitals that have low scores for hospital acquired conditions get a ding on their reimbursement. Right. So Medicare keeps up with all those factors. It's built into the Medicare reimbursement where we take a claim and we price it to exactly what Medicare would pay. We therefore take in all those decision points to set the reimbursement. So what I'm hearing you say that is ref- the reference point, if you will, is you're saying, hey, look, we're not relying on the, the best efforts of a carrier or a third party administrator that rents a network. We're not using on the, the best negotiation efforts. We're saying, hey, look, we're taking a a reimbursement methodology that every hospital, every doctor understands. And then we're allowing the employers to set that reference point of saying, hey, we're going to pay X percent higher than Medicare. Is that correct? That's right. And there may be situations where the plan either may want to do this on their own or certainly recommendations from us as as a RBP partner of theirs, Mm -hmm. depending on the market, you may need to pay a higher level of the Medicare multiple than in other markets, you know, depending on what the market would bear. But Medicare is not perfect, but it has a reimbursement uh, set for all the services. It is based in cost. Uh, The cost reports help in those factors. In lieu of something else, you know, we use Medicare to pay for the largest segment of our population today. And so it is a a good defensible basis in which to base reimbursement because charge uh, masters don't mean anything. Agreed totally. Many hospital systems do a fantastic job of marketing themselves to the general public. The branding ability of a hospital system to affect a contractual rate is absolutely there with any carrier that does business in whatever marketplace. Would would you agree? Yes, especially some of your, you know, premier uh, systems that have certainly the reputation uh, of the big names, the centers of excellence. They are very good providers. You want your family to have the best care. You know, should they get paid 10 times what the going rate is? That's what Medicare can help do. It can help cut through all of the, the charges and the, the marketing and all the stuff that's wrapped in that and see, you know, what truly is the cost of this hospital and then let's reimburse a fair market rate for that. In regards to Medicare, does it do an adequate enough job to allow for the qualitative differences so that you can take the, the branding piece out of the equation? Oh, we think it does. We think it does. And, then, and, you know, and, and if there's a reason where it's not, we believe direct contracting with a plan to a provider is a good thing. And, and providers want to have relationships directly with employers in their market. Mm-hmm. And if it makes sense that the multiple of that Medicare is higher for a prestigious, specialized type of provider, then, then maybe, you know, it warrants that, but we just want to get whatever that reimbursement is at a, you know, some transparency around it to say, you know, what is its equivalent to Medicare? Could some providers, based on their their quality and their prestige and their specialty, 
need higher reimbursement? Possibly. Uh, let's just do it on a basis of a Medicare rate. Uh, so we're comparing apples to apples. Another point on that is that in the uh, traditional carrier world, you, you get an overall discount. So you, necess- you can't necessarily compare the effectiveness of hospital A versus hospital B because it's all kind of muddled together. I guess in a reference-based pricing world, that doesn't matter. What matters is the quality component, the reference point that a client would choose. Would, would you agree with that? Yes. Why do you suggest companies move towards reference-based pricing as a payment alternative? Well, you know, if the plan wants to save money and if they want some control in, in how they reimburse providers and, and what their, their savings are, then they, they need to do something other than what they're doing today. So it is something new. It's more work for everyone involved. I will say that. More work for the third-party administrator. It's going to be more work for the plan. It's going to be more work for the broker and certainly the member. But if we keep doing what we're doing today, it's not very effective. Reference-based pricing is going to have a significant amount of savings for the plan, but there will be, you know, things that need to be worked out. Patient access, balanced bills, your RBP vendor needs to have solutions to help members and plans tackle all the things that come along with reference-based pricing. Are you at all concerned as more and more employers jump into that space that do you think that at some point hospital systems are going to catch on and say, look, we're either no longer going to accept reference-based pricing as a reimbursement methodology or push harder on the amount that they would say is a fair reimbursement rate? Well, I think they're already there. Uh, RBP is certainly a small piece of self-funded. You know, most people still have networks. So it's small, but, but hospitals are waking up to the concept in, in some areas more than others. In the Northeast, there's probably not, there's not a whole lot of RBP going on. So maybe hospitals up there don't know what we're talking about. In Ohio and Texas and the South and the Rust Belt out West, they absolutely are, are know what reference-based pricing is. They're trying to figure it out because it's something they're going to have to deal with. More and more uh, employers are doing it. More and more employers are talking about it. You've got municipalities doing it now. You've got entire state employees that are doing it in Montana, North Carolina. So, so hospitals know something's coming. But on the flip side, you know, we've got clients that are hospital systems themselves. They realize that their health plan they have to, today with high deductibles and a major network is not working for their own employees, and they're looking for alternatives. It is part of the conversation and how it ultimately ends up affecting the market. I think it's getting everybody talking at least and looking at the status quo and major carriers looking at how, how they're going to incorporate some level of, of a reference rate into what they're doing today. Yeah, and uh, I don't know if this is a, an okay question to ask, but you mentioned a client can choose a reference point and you guys would give recommendations. What is a rate that you see many plans or, or systems are just naturally settling on? Sure. So, you know, there, there's a sweet spot out there. You, you need to pay enough to, to give a fair reimbursement to a provider who, who provides you know, quality care to your members. But you have to pay enough to keep the noise down to a manageable level. You'll never get noise and reference-based pricing down to zero. If you do, then you might as well be paying full bill charges on every claim. There's a sweet spot out there. You know, somewhere between 140 to 160 with professional providers on the lower end and hospitals on the higher end. Some areas that may be even up to 170, 180, depending on, on the hospital in the, in the part of the country. Um, but that typically is our sweet spot. We say about 140 to 160. 
every employer has their own threshold of risk. And if you have somebody that's new to RBP and is risk averse, then they may be on the higher side. We have some plans who have been doing RBP for years and they're on the lower side and they understand what that brings with them. It's going to be a little bit more noise, a little bit more balanced bills, but they're willing to accept that level of work because they want to get reimbursement as low as they can. Mm-hmm. And so with, with that in mind, you're, you're right, because the low, it's really more of a noise factor, but also a, a, either an a, aggressive posture. I don't know if I'd use the word risk averse, but you're absolutely right. I mean, you, you're setting that threshold and you're either a, an employer says, you know what, we're going to get as aggressive as possible, understand we may have more noise, but we've got a veil of protection and a great company to help navigate through those challenges as they come up. Do you have a sense, is, are most employers settling on the, hey, let's just, let's go through this storm and hopefully no one notices, or are you having more of your customers say, you know what, we've been taken long enough, let's be as aggressive as possible? No, employers don't want to, you know, cut hospital reimbursement to the bone. They want hospitals to, to be there to take care of their members and continue to be a good partner in the market. They just need them to understand that their charge master is not effective and they need to come to terms with what that reimbursement is. So I think most of our clients, I would say, are in, in the middle and you want to do the right thing to, the, to their community partners. They just need hospitals to meet them halfway, especially hospitals that are non-for-profit and that should be in the community providing a partnership and a level of service to their community, you know, under their uh, nonprofit status. Understood. So let's let's talk a little bit about, about Payer Compass. Now, I think we've done a a great job in terms of talking about reference-based pricing at a high level, but I also know that there's there are several companies that are out there right now in your space, and obviously there's a wide variety of reasons to consider a particular provider, and I, and I, I know we're going to cover that, but let's talk a little bit about Payer Compass. Why was your company started? Well, it started, we're a technology company, and we had, and we had a technology of where we price claims to a Medicare rate and do it extremely effectively. We own our own technology. We don't, we don't outsource to somebody. We have our own compliance team. So from a technology perspective, we're able to take in claims, price them exactly to the penny accurate to Medicare and, and out. So initially, we started partnering with PPAs, selling them our technology. They could send us their claims. We would price them, send them back. And they could do this thing out in the market called reference-based pricing. Mm-hmm. But we found that early on, our TPA partners uh, needed more. They needed a thing called patient advocacy and balanced bill support. And that just wasn't there. And they weren't set up in order to do that. So that's so- really when our um, product kind of evolved. But how it started really was a technology company that we knew we had this great niche in the market that empl- you know employers were looking for an alternative that we could help support with, with, with our technology. Okay. And you mentioned advocacy. And when, when I think of that, I, I think of uh, players that are out there that when a phone rings, it's more of a, an advocate and that they help them navigate the healthcare system from any particular angle. What, what does advocacy mean in your world? When you replace your PPO that we all have known uh, for 20 plus years, we don't know what to do or who to call. We're used to having a logo on the card and we go to a website and we type in the zip code we're in and we look for a laundry list of say dermatologists that we can go to. Who can you go to? It's all about who you can go to. Well, when you remove the logo from the card, members may have some confusion. Well, I was told before I could go to these 27 dermatologists in my zip code and now you've taken that away from me. I don't know what to do. So that's when a patient advocate helps. A patient advocate helps members and also helps providers. 
And it's really about explaining what the plan is, explaining what the reimbursement is, answering questions about the plan. Not as much as directing care. I mean, we're not credentialing physicians out there. There is no network. But a member has gone to a physician for years and their plan changes. They may want to understand, can I still go to my doctor? And will my doctor take my new plan? You know, am I going to have problems when I walk in and give my ID card? Or am I going to get this thing called a balanced bill? So our advocates talk to members about that. And then we make outreach on behalf of the member to their physician in order to explain what the plan is, see if the physician has any questions. And we're trying to gain acceptance from the physician in order to put them in our safe harbor list so that we can reassure the member when they go to their doctor they've gone to for years, the doctor will take their card and whatever little copay they have and treat them and, and, not, and they don't need to worry about what the reimbursement is because the physician will submit their claim, we're going to price it, the TPA involved is going to pay it, it's going to happen like they've always, they've always had care uh, you know, given by this provider. It is a foreign concept for an employee to say, okay, I have this network and I've been trained over the last 30 or 40 years to look in a book or look online for Dr. Smith. And now you're saying, hey, you can stay with your current doctor. You can go wherever you want. Any um, doctor you want to. Yeah, any doctor you want to. Now, what, what is generally the biggest challenge that you see in moving from a traditional network arrangement when it comes to the patient advocacy? Is it more on the patient side or more on the doctor side? bit of both. Uh, you know, members need to be educated. They can go anywhere they want to. And, and physicians, you know, need to be educated as to what reimbursement is. I mean, physicians are easy to talk to. And most physicians have been paid on an RVU Medicare rate for 20 years. They understand what Medicare is. And when you talk to certain specialties like uh, OB or pediatrics, those specialties typically don't have as much interaction with a Medicare patient. So they may have questions about, well, my normal office visit, I build $75, what, is that, what would the reimbursement be, be under, my plan, under this plan? Our advocates can look at that code, give the physician's office some information as to what the reimbursement really means to them and their code set, and reassure them that, you know, this is a legitimate insurance and that they're going to submit a claim and they're going to get paid. Part of this, too, is maybe explaining you know, plan design is key with, with the reference-based pricing program. It is certainly easier to explain reference-based pricing to a provider when you have a rich plan design, $5,000 deductible health plans that we all have that nobody really pays for, uh, when you explain to a provider that the, what the plan design is and that this is going to be really a, a first dollar type of uh, plan, meaning collect a reasonable copay from your patient up front at the time of service, and then after that, the administrator is going to pay first dollar. It, it's an easier conversation to have with, with a really good plan design. A couple of things you had said. You said, one, you, you have an established panel. And I, I forget the word you said, but it's so essentially if you want to, as, as an advocate, if somebody had a question about whether or not you've already seen a, a particular doctor has already accepted or accepts reimbursement from you, what, what is that called again? We call it a safe harbor list. Safe harbor list. How big is that list? And is that a, is that a strategic advantage for you guys? Uh, it is. We have over... Gee, uh, 100,000 providers, I think, on the list. And again, that is just people we have, we consider providers like a traffic light, right. you know, green, yellow, and red. So a green provider would say, it's something on our safe harbor list that we have made contact with, that they have a firm that they will accept the plan, meaning a member will come in, they will treat them and not reject them, and they will bill the plan for reimbursement and not balance bill. That's, that's a green provider. Okay. Uh, that's on our safe harbor list. 
A red provider is someone where we have received a balanced bill and negotiation uh, is, is difficult and we would not recommend a member going to that provider because of it. But the vast majority of, physici uh, of providers are really in the middle. They're the yellows. They're people who may not have been contacted, you know, because as much as you encourage membership to call patient advocacy, the vast majority aren't. They're just going to go see their doctors and they get care and providers submit bills. We price them, TPAs pay them, and we never hear anything back from a pushback perspective. The vast majority of providers are what we would call yellow. They're not on our safe harbor list because we have not spoken to them specifically about the plan, but yet they're accepting RBP rates every day. 100,000, that's a, a substantial number. And so I, I wasn't sure number of providers that you've touched, but yeah, for a, a company moving into that space, having the experience saying, hey, look, it's not a network, but this is a base of providers that have either accepted without a question, accepted with some hesitation or just stay away from, certainly can help navigate. And I would imagine you use that as a, as a lever with your provider community as well. Is, is that a safe? We use it as an advantage when a, a group, uh, a consultant, a broker is looking to bring a client or to RBP. Mm -hmm. uh, they'll partner you know, with one of our TPA partners. We'll run some analytics on their data and we'll look in the market to see, okay, this employer is in, is in this uh, zip code. What is our experience in that area? Do we have a footprint there? Is the footprint good or is it bad? Or we don't have a footprint yet, so we really don't know. We contact with third-party administrators, so typically it is the consultant or broker and the employer going to them and then contacting us about, in this market, you know, what is your experience pair company? I presume that would be similar to like, a geo-access summary where you can at least say, hey, look, here's any particular area. Here's either X number of doctors that we've already worked with. And can you do a disruption saying, hey, look, these are the specific tax ID numbers. And you can come back with red, yellow, green on those providers. We can. MPI is what we need, uh, not necessarily tax ID numbers. But but yes, we, we do something very similar to a disruption report that uses geo-access. Not exactly, but very similar to get to give a, a level of, of comfort an experience to the group. Yeah, I got you. Can you talk about some other things regarding carevalent? Obviously, patient advocacy is a big part and care management is a big part, but what, what other elements of carevalent are very important for your organization? Sure. So the other piece, besides you know, patient advocacy is a must, members and providers need someone to talk to when the, that logo is not there on the card. But when there is pushback, and we find that 1% to 2% of all claims do result in a balanced bill, Members certainly need somebody to talk to. The TPA needs somebody to talk to. Somebody's got to work that balance bill, and that's what Carevalent does. So the balance bill comes to us. We do verify that with the TPA that it's not patient responsibility because that goes back to that, you know, plan design is, is very important here. The balance billing specialist will reach out to the member, introduce themselves, explain to them that we have your balance bill, and we're going to work on getting that written off. And we have a system, a database, where we log the balance bill, and we begin to make outreach with the provider via phone calls and letters trying to explain why we don't believe this is a balanced bill, why the provider should write it off. And in a large number of cases, we do get those balance bills written off without any additional payment. Uh, sometimes there is a need for a settlement. Uh, when there is a settlement, we need it to be at a reasonable percentage of Medicare, even though it is above the plan reimbursement. We keep the TPA and the plan involved in that uh, negotiation process. It's not our dollars. We're doing this on behalf of someone else. We need the plan to sign off on this. So we uh, work very closely with the plans and the um, third-party administrator during our settlement process when there is one. 
Yeah, I understand. That's a that's a huge part of the process. But but how do you guys tackle that? Is it does the plan give you a certain amount of jurisdiction saying, hey, we want you to negotiate? Or is it more along the lines of we're going to use legal defense to reach a settlement? Sure. So you ha- I haven't mentioned the FIA group, but the FIA group based out of Boston oh, is yeah. our partner on our RBP program, Innovate 360. They're part of our program. Not only do they help us on the back with balanced bills, but I guess I should take a step back, back. And on the front end, they help us by harmonizing the plan. They help us by reviewing the plan documents, the ID card, the EOB, and making recommendations. Mm-hmm. Make sure those documents are locked down, you know, very cohesive. But then if there's a time on the back end with a balanced bill that uh, we are not successful about getting it written off or we're not successful getting it negotiated reasonably, then we can always escalate that balanced bill to the FIA group. They'll pick it up and they will assist in the final stages of getting that uh, negotiated. How do you work out the compensation to the FIA group for their service? Good question. Our reference-based pricing uh, program called Innovate 360 is a PEPM. So it's a per employee per month. That's our fee. Okay. That's what we're contracted with the uh, TPA to pay. And the fee uh, includes everything we talked about today. So it talks about payer compass, being able to take in claims and edit claims and price claims and get those back to the third party administrator. It includes uh, patient advocacy, talking to members, talking to providers. It covers the uh, care valence or the FIA group working on balanced bills. It covers all those services. So there's not a an additional fee for a balance bill to go to the FIA group. It's part of the, the, the PEPM that the plan pays to the TPA, which gets paid to us. And then the FIA services are included in that. I guess that's a very important point to uh, acknowledge because there are many reference-based pricing companies. And having a fixed fee versus a percentage of savings or a percentage of bill charge, that's a huge differential. And well, what has your experience been in comparing? That's a no-brainer. Uh, you know, we sit here and we talk for a long time in the beginning of the call about charge masters and how relevant they are. And then when you tie a vendor's fee to that charge master, it really doesn't make sense. Not only that, but you're building in a guaranteed automatic increase year over year that has no bearing on anything other than what the provider says their charge master is going up. Exactly. So with a PEPM, it's a fixed cost. A, a, an employer can budget for that, for that. They can plan for that. We think it's sustainable. Basing something off um, a charge master, whether it be a percent of charges or a percent of savings, is, we don't think it's sustainable in the long term. We've done analysis after analysis of people who bring us claims, and they've been with a competitor who is based on one of those other models. And it's shocking to see that the fee to a vendor on one claim could be more than you pay the hospital. I got a case in point where it's a $91,000 knee surgery claim and the vendor at 12% of charges or, or whatever it was would have been paid more than the hospital who, who did the guy's knee surgery. Oh, we, yeah. we just don't think that, that's the model that, that's very sustainable. Yeah, no, and I have a client that is with a traditional carrier and went through the pricing model. And uh, I think I made the sales guy upset because when I have yet to see a reference-based pricing reimbursement model that that pays more than a traditional carrier, at least on the claim side. But when you added in the the, uh, the, fee, yep. the fees, it was more than what they were currently paying through a traditional model. And the, the, the sales guy uh, was just either thought I was stupid or was just incredulous. So he just didn't believe what I was saying. 
but it was just, it was crazy. The, the difference. Yeah. And soft loss carriers are, are don't love that model because it's kind of the whole uh, shell game is, you know, where, where, where the dollar's going, not only being transparent on claims, uh, being transparent with your fees is very important. Yeah. So you mentioned the FIA group and Adam Russo, actually, he did a, a recording a, a few podcasts ago. Really nice guy. But what, why did you choose the FIA group as your partner in upfront reviewing the SPD and plan documents, but then also to support legal defense? Well, they certainly, you know, have the experience and reputation. We, we just have a lot in common about, uh, you know, our, our philosophy on the industry and, you know, where reference-based pricing fits into the market. And it just, it's, just, it was, it's been a good fit, good partner. Yeah, agree totally. I wanted to make sure I understood in that because when, when I talk to clients about balance billing and the potential for balance billing under this plan, that tends to scare them. But what I, what I typically say is, is that you have balance billing going on in your plan right now. You have it, uh, most likely it happens to somebody that did what they thought was right. They go to a network hospital and then somebody touches them that's not contracted and then the not so fun stuff starts. That happens now. I want to make sure I understand in your world, plan sponsor has the option of including balance billing support on the physician side as well. Is that, is that correct? That's true. Today, balance billing happens in large networks. The yep. difference is there's no one there to help the member like there is in, in our program. Our take is if you're going to do reference-based pricing, do it for all claims, not just hospitals. Well, balance billing is rare, 1% or 2% of all claims. It's certainly even rarer on your professional claims. But if a professional claim results in a balance bill, the entire process of our balance bill program works the exact same way. The balance bill comes in, we log it, we track it, we connect the member, let them know we have it, and we begin work immediately on getting that balance bill resolved. In terms of the care advisor, did you want to talk a little bit sure, about I, that? Sure, I would love to. So care advisor is our um, care management program at CareValent, fully uh, URAC accredited for UM and case management. Mm -hmm. uh, we're also licensed in all the states that require licensure. Not every state does, but the, every state that we operate in that requires uh, licensure, we have that. Some third-party administrators also provide care management services. Our program, our reference-based pricing programs works whether you use our care management system or not. We think it adds a nice complement because you have case managers that are on the phone with your members that have access to the same information that patient advocates do so they can help. If somebody in, care, in case management is going in for another MRI, and they're going to a hospital that we know is a choice for balance billing, then the case manager has an opportunity to talk to that member to say, you know, you're going to Hospital X uh, for this MRI next week. You know, you certainly can go there, but our experience is such. Could you consider going to hospital, you know, Y or Z? So it, it helps with continuity of care, we believe. But again, uh, you know, if, if somebody is with a care management company today or the TPA does the care management themselves, the rest of the program will, will work just like we described it, even if you don't use our care management program. But we also offer care management at a PEPM, case management hourly. So it's, it's a nice add-on at a, at a good rate to RBT plan. Why is that important? Why is it valuable to package that? Well, when you replace the PPO, you're going to need somebody to do your care management, your pre-cert, your UM, case management. You're going to need somebody to do that. And having it with us, you know, our case managers are in the same system that our patient advocates, our balance billing specialists work in. So they'll have access to reimbursement information. They'll have access to safe harbor providers, who's not a safe harbor provider. And so having that continuity there could assist during the case management process as, you, as people are, are needing more care. 
All right. Thank you. So what I'm hearing you say is that rather than have the, the TPA do that, where you could have a separation of data and there's just not merged, it's all under one house, under one shop, if you will. And so that would allow a more seamless continuity of care and also more natural redirection when it's appropriate. Well, we think so. But again, you know, it's not always CPAs that do the care management. I mean, there's other separate standalone care management companies who probably offer care management services that are just great. If you're going to use RBP programs, it makes sense to have care management with us for we're all in the same system. We're all, you know, looking at the same information. We know which providers are, are RBP friendly and which ones are less. Hmm, I got you. So in your model, is it uh, one size fits all or how do you integrate with plans? So it's not one size fits all. Throwing out your entire PPO and going reference-based pricing may not be for everybody. Some people want to do RBP for out-of-networks first, if they're toe in the water, see how that works. And then, uh, you know, do that for a while before you you totally throw out your PPO. We have options. Certainly out-of-network is an option. We've got some clients who have a, a pretty robust direct provider contracting strategy. We help with that. We load those contracts. We interpret those contracts, model those contracts, and then we wrap RBP around it. We call it kind of a hybrid Innovate 360, if you will. So there's, there's a lot of options depending on what the plan uh, wants to do. So in the hybrid model, who would that be a good fit for? Larger employers who want to do a lot more direct contracting mm-hmm. or a third-party administrator who's out there being very aggressive with direct contracting in their area. Do many of your arrangements with providers turn into direct contracts or is that not really your model? Normally, we don't go out up front trying to negotiate with the provider. You can get a direct contract up front, but typically your rates aren't very good. We find that in many cases, it's on the back end as you're working through a balance bill or two or three or 20 balance bills with a provider. It can help get to a direct contract. Today, Payer Compass, we don't hold the direct contract. The paper is held by the plan or the TPA. We help facilitate that. And many times, the facilitation comes through the balance bill process on the back end when you're trying to work on a deal it says you know what does does it make sense to have have this a larger deal for for everybody in this group so i would imagine for many employers and it could be those that are in a small town or smaller town maybe you're a decent sized employer but feel like you have no leverage and leverage might be the wrong word but you just feel like you're helpless if you will against just costs going up to me this this is a way of raising your hands. And Dave Chase would say something to the effect of you get to exert not just your influence, but your ability to take an active role in managing not only the health of your plan, but the profitability of your company by embracing a, a modality or methodology like this. I would agree. You know, and you mentioned small markets, a smaller employer in a small market, sometimes it's almost easier because, you know, people know each other. It's not like you're in Dallas. It's harder to know who the head of the hospital, the big hospital system is. But in a smaller community, an employer may know the person kind of high up at the hospital. They, um, the kids go to school together. They go to church together. They see each other at the soccer field or something, you know. So I've heard people say healthcare is like politics at the local level. So that's where people can really begin to have a conversation as to, you know, reimbursement, what it is, what it should be at, at a smaller local level. I got you. And so uh, give me a, a, an understanding or the, for the audience, the volume of, of claim activities and, the, and somehow to categorize your experience in this space. Or, and so I've, I'm not sure how many claims you've processed, how many TPAs you work with, but just something like that to show the reason why 
an employer should consider a TPA that you work with um, or find you and then figure out what TPA to work with. Does that make sense? It is. So we are really TPA agnostic. I mean, we, we, we work with a lot of TPAs, I'd say probably over 80 across the country. When an employer or a consultant comes to us and they're looking for a TPA, they want to use our model, but they, they need a TPA, they can certainly bring their own to us and we'll be happy to work with them. But, but many times they say, you know, uh, pay our companies, give us your list of TPAs and who we can go to. The great thing that TPAs bring is the level of customization. So finding a TPA that same uh, general locality is usually something that the employer likes, somebody local they can talk to uh, a little easier. And then, uh, you know, some TPA partners of ours only handle big groups, over a thousand. And we have some TPAs that only with groups that are under 100 people. So finding, you know, a little bit more information about the prospect, giving them some TPAs to go talk to and look at. Because there's other services the TPA is going to be able to offer that have nothing to do with payer companies that you want to, you know, vet and compare TPAs to each other. So we can certainly help by partnering up mm-hmm. a prospect with a number of TPAs in their market. Okay. And, and how many members do you support nationwide? We have this with about, oh, let's see, last count, uh, probably over a thousand self-funded employers. Wow. So uh, membership, oh, probably 75,000 or so members. I mean, employees and members is, you know, some multiple of that. Yeah, probably two to two and a half of that. So yeah, you yeah. Say I think 2.3, 2.5 is the multiple. So, so I think there's at least 75,000 last time I looked employees across those thousand employers. Okay. You know, and employers range in size. We've got employers that are four, five, six people. Uh, we've got some that are in the thousands. I would say our sweet spot probably is is the average employer with us is probably somewhere between 100 and 250 people. Okay. And I understand that you guys have you've helped process over a million claims. Is that correct? Oh, yes. Yes. Millions of claims. Is there something that we missed as part of the conversation today you feel is incredibly important for folks to understand about your company? Yeah. And one of the things we didn't mention is when there is a settlement, and there will be a settlement, and not every settlement is going to be great either. I mean, most settlements are good, but there's going to be some that really stink. And so even when you add the settlement that's not great back into the savings, you're, you're not moving the needle very much, and the savings is still enormous over what it was under you know, a book of plans. Mm-hmm. But my point was that when there is a settlement, we're not asking Susie Q to get out of her pocketbook and write a check. It's come out of planned dollars. And I think once members understand that, then say, you know what, you have skin in this game. We need you to get the balance bill in the door. We need you to be patient as we work through the process. But at the end of the day, if you do that and we can't get it written off, but we get it settled, the plan's going to be there to pay the settlement and we're not going to ask you to write a check. Yeah. Um, if people understand that, then I, I think it would help. But that's a, that's a lot of education for people who don't really understand a lot about healthcare. So I know it's a lot of... Yeah, and I think the environment that's probably most relatable or the one that most people would understand is when you go to the hospital and that thing happens when the anesthesiologist bills you or whomever, the radiologist, pathologist, you get that bill. And in a current environment, if you're in a traditional network, your balance billed and you best of luck to you. Normally there's no support, right. there's nothing. In the payer compass world, it's you need to let us know you've been balance billed and allow us to settle on your on, on not only your behalf, but on the plan's behalf as well. And so what I heard you say is when that does happen and a settlement is reached, it's not coming out of the member's pocket. It's just part of the planning expense. Is that correct? Absolutely correct. Yeah. yeah. And the sooner the member lets us know, the easier it is to work. You know, working a balanced bill that just hit your mailbox is much easier than one that has now, uh, they sent you three notices and now you've gone to collections and now we're trying to claw it back in order to work it. 
yeah. that's a harder balance bill to negotiate. That's the part of the participation requirement that we're saying, hey, look, we're asking you to be a ready, willing, and able consumer. You still need to fight for your own health. You need to do what's right for you as an individual, but understand we got your back. Correct. Kelly, I want to thank you so much for your time today. It's been a very enlightening conversation, and I do thank you for all that you do. Thank you for your time today, and thank you all for all that you're doing on behalf of your members. Well, I appreciate it and enjoyed uh, visiting with you today, Michael, and uh, look forward to um, another time where we can talk. Yeah, I look forward to it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good weekend. Yeah, you too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Solving Healthcare. If you like this episode, please rate it and also provide your comments. If you would like to know how this service or others could fit within your organization, or if you'd like to sign up for future podcasts and news updates, please go to www.solvinghealthcare.net and click on contact. Thank you.